Welcome back to Out the Gate. I'm Ben Shaw, host and producer of the show. This past January, I caught up by Zoom with Joe Balderrama. He's the Commodore of the Single-Handed Sailing Society here in San Francisco. I've been wanting to have someone from the San Francisco SSS on for some time, so I was delighted to chat with Joe. He has some great stories, both about the origins of the organization and his own single-handed racing, both in San Francisco Bay and across the Pacific. I actually talked to Joe before this year's Three Bridge Fiasco, which is put on by the Single-Handed Sailing Society. It's a great race that if you're not familiar with, you'll learn all about from listening to this episode. Interestingly enough, one of the things that Joe and I talk about in relation to the race is staying on the boat. Well, (laughs) this year's race, towards the end of the race, Jim Fair, who sails a Merit 25 named Chesapeake, took a, a, a wrong move and found himself overboard, dragging in the water besides his boat with his harness on. And he was unable to get himself back aboard. But fortunately, Don Guay was nearby on his Newport 30, and he sailed over, told Jim he had a ladder in the back of his boat, and offered to pick him up. So Jim unclipped, swam over to Don's boat, and then Don was able to drop Jim back on his boat where he then completed the race. <laughs> so there is no rule about uh, being aboard the whole time. You can read a full description of that rescue in a March 10th electronic latitude posting on the Latitude 38 website if you want to know all the details. Anyway, I really enjoyed this conversation with Joe. I hope you do too. My name is Joe Balderrama, and I've been sailing on the bay, gosh, I want to say since 2004. And um, I don't come from a sailing background of any sorts. I've always had a love for the water. I remember my mother taking me to the Red Cross series of classes as I was growing up as a, a military army brat. And so you go to these different forts or nearby military housing. And they usually have some nice swimming facilities. And so anything associated with the water, I mean, I just loved. Sooner or later, you know, I got onto a sailboard or a windsurfer and I had a big love with that. If you're on a windsurfer, sooner or later, you're gonna get on a sailboat. That's how I arrived at sailing. And where was that? I would say it all probably started at Cal State University Northridge. There was a very good um, after bay or a forebay called Castaic Lake. Cal State Northridge had their PE classes there, and it was just general sailing. And you learned, get this, you learned windsurfing. You learned a little bit of uh, kayaking. Uh, You learned uh, Hobie or catamaran sailing. And you learned how to uh, sailboard or windsurf. And my instructor, <laughs> his name was John Venarsdale. And I remember him very distinctly because he was a nice guy. There was a photograph of him. It was the 1962 Sports Illustrated cover. And I think it was black and white. But John was on there as a water skier. 
you know, and I said, oh, this guy, is, he's uh, somebody of notice, somebody of consequence to begin with. So, and then as I took classes from, I realized this is a, I like his teaching style. Once he gives you the basics, he's really hands off. And then he just comes around and gives you some tune-up tips. And I really like that. You said you first started sailing on San Francisco Bay in 2004. Tell yeah. me about how that started. I had bought my first boat. And previous to that, I had been sailing and learning how big boats. I've always learned small boats at, you know, the university taking PE classes. But then when I arrived at San Francisco, I had left a budding scene down in Southern California. I was doing those mm, Tuesday night beer can races on a C-15 at the UCLA Aquatic Center. I was even halfway through my season as crew on a 505. And I was getting into some big boats, which I didn't like as much. Uh, I like kind of the small uh, dinghy action. And then when I relocated to San Francisco or to Fremont for a job, um, I really didn't know how to break into the sailing scene here at all. So I gravitated toward my first love, which was windsurfing. Mm -hmm. And then uh, somebody introduced me to a place, uh, Club Nautique, that, you know, it's kind of like you show up and you pay your membership and you learn, you know, small keel boats and then you move your way up. And then it's nice to know some of the uh, very uh, good stuff about seamanship because they offer the, um, I think, what is that course they call it? Is it a, there's usually an ASA certification or U.S. sailing certification. I forget now, but mm -hmm. you know, the typical progression of classes. You know what I got really tired of? <laughs> I got really tired of renting boats from there and they make you do like a, you know, half an hour or a full hour umpteenth checklist. And it's like, you know, I really want my own little boat that I can just walk down to or pull off a trailer in the water and and uh, I found an Express 27, which I had heard about and I had sailed on once or twice. The uh, fleet captain of the Express 27 uh, site or the class in San Francisco, really nice guy named Jason Croson. He let me uh, crew on one of the midwinter races. And then I'm always kind of very methodical about things. So I spent some time in the estuary sailing with a guy named Scott Tipper. He had an Express 27. And I was like, hooked. I go, okay, this is a boat. Forget about <laughs> the Moore 24. I want the Express 27. You know, I found a guy who was uh, uh, ready to release his. He was the original owner. Oh, Dick Swanson. Yeah. Dick Swanson owned Archimedes. I've never changed the name. I, I, I'm, I'm superstitious about that way. Dick is a, I didn't know it at the time, but he was a co-founder of a place called Sun Power that does solars. And this was back in 2003. So just shifting from 2003 to 2004 in December, you know, later I'd find out, well, this is, this guy's not just, you know, some sailor. He's actually a person who's also, you know, notable and of someone of consequence too. So that's how I got into it. And I just assumed all sailboats coming from dinghies. Mostly it's like, well, they all should sail like this. But then someone told me, no, this is an outstanding boat. And it goes, ah, yeah, I'm lucky. <laughs> I have one of Dick's panels on, on my boat. Um, oh. <laughs> <laughs> some, some power panels are nice panels. But, and the Express 27, great boat. And you're the Commodore of the Single-Handed Sailing Society, which 
leads me to, the, we'll talk more about that, but leads me to the question, was most of your sailing in that boat single-handed? Yes, it was my first boat ever. And I did start off with a three-bridge fiasco in 2004. Um, and naturally, you know, I didn't know uh, enough about boats where I was comfortable sailing by myself. So I sailed with my uh, friend, uh, Vincent Delone at the time, and we both double-handed on our first three-bridge fiasco, our first ever race in the bay. <laughs> That's a great race to start with. It is. And I remember, I remember two things, I think. I remember breaking the motor a week before the race. <laughs> I didn't know how outboards worked so well. So I think I shifted while it was still in gear or still revving. <laughs> and I had broken the shaft and I was sweating it as the, account, the days were counting down to the start of three bridge. And the second memory I have is Vincent and I at dark crossing the line and going like, oh, thank God. We high five each other. We finished. And then we didn't hear a horn from the race committee because it was seven o'clock ish. And I thought, let me just call them and ask them, you know, why did they see us? We had our flashlights on the sale number. And there was a long pause when I, you know, radioed in and asked them. And they said, sorry, Archimedes, uh, you are 30 seconds behind the seven o'clock cutoff. Oh. <laughs> and oh. we deflated like balloons <laughs> in there. That hurts. And to this day, I am always fastidious, thoughtful about any time that I might be like dueling or not doing something to make the boat go uh, faster or steady. Even while I'm eating, I want to make sure the sails are trimmed and I can eat. I, I keep my wits about me to make sure I'm not losing any sort of speed, knots, time. A true racer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> so for those who might not be familiar with the uh, three bridge fiasco. I'm sure most people here in the, most sailors here in the Bay area will know what this race is about, but we do have some listeners who are outside the Bay area. Explain this fantastic race. It's unlike any other I've heard about. If you're outside the Bay area, or if you've never experienced this, this is one heck of a race. Picture, you know, our three bridges here, basically, the San Francisco Golden Gate Bridge, and then we have the Oakland Bay Bridge, and then we have the other bridge, the, uh, what we call that, the Richmond San Rafael Bridge, we'd say. Yeah. And we don't necessarily go underneath all three, but we go around some significant marks and points uh, very close to them. And the thing is, you can go in any direction you want, and you can start and finish in any direction you want. And because of the winds that could be really fickle in late January, and as well as the tides or the current, it really makes for a fiasco. I mean, you know, the day before, the two days before, people are planning about which way to go, what's their strategy is based upon the current and the wind. And then it's always, okay, that's what we're gonna do, but, once we get to the start, we're gonna we could change our mind and go with Plan B. <laughs> <laughs> and the great thing about it is the Golden Gate Bridge is to the west end of the bay. Richmond San Rafael Bridge is kind of the northeast end, and the Bay Bridge is down southern end of the main bay. So it's kind of a big circle. So you got people going every which way. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's. Um, I think the toughest part about this race 
is going backwards <laughs> at times. <laughs> and you're actually racing people to go backwards less fast. <laughs> and sometimes you will need your anchor. So you don't want to go backwards at all. I remember, I think two years ago, some people were washed out you know, backwards under the Golden Gate Bridge. In other words, they started the race inside the bay and they went backwards underneath the Golden Gate because the current was ebbing so strong. I guess at that point, you just wait for the tides to change. Yeah, what else can you do? Or you seek shallow water and you drop an anchor if you're just too much, if it's just too much. Yeah, and that's all part of the fiasco. You can't Does take dropping an anchor disqualify you or is that okay? Anchor is considered, uh, you might say, a piece of racing equipment, and that is okay. What's not okay is if you were to grab a pylon or a buoy. Um, believe it or not, the uh, sailing um, rules uh, allow you to, the, the, the racing rules of sailing allow you to get off the boat and stay in the water to hold the boat, but they do not allow you to hold on to a pylon or any buoy. Interesting. I've never checked our own sail instructions in the SSS. I don't think we would want or encourage people to leave their boat, especially if they're shorthanded. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you, as Commodore of the Single-Handed Sailing Society, just had to make a, uh, a difficult call about this year's fiasco. Uh, what was that? Well, it, it was, we have a board of five people. It's myself. We have a, a secretary, a treasurer, the typical officers you would have on a board or directors. And so amongst them, you know, my job is to try to remain neutral, but to present all the information as much as possible. And of course, the Commodore can influence decisions. You want to make sure that uh, if the board decides they want to go uh, swim backwards in the water, I might remind them, well, it's probably not a good idea. We do need boats to start a race. But I have the A-team. I've got some good people on there and we've made some um, careful deliberations and because of the health issues and most importantly, uh, our state of stay at home orders is such that the race committee shall not gather. They can be together if they're in the same household, but if they're not, they can't be together. They can't be together on a boat. They can't be together in a car, in a parking lot. So. We made that decision as well as limiting it to 125 single handers because we do know across the bay that there are people who may say that they're in the same household to race. Um, and some of them, a few of them, maybe, you know, that's true. But others, you know, how do you, how do you check that? We're yeah. not in the job of enforcement, but we are an entity and we are responsible just so like you've li else. so you've limited it to single handers and not double handers as as is traditionally one of the classes. Yes, and this will be a very unique year for uh, the Three Bridge fiasco, and I'm already looking forward to what the the T-shirt's going to be uh, looking like or design like. <laughs> and when does that happen this year? This will be January thirtieth. Tell me a little bit more. You, you talked about the, the makeup of the Single-Handed Sailing Society. Tell me about the organization, what its mission is, its history. Let's probably start with a person. I think that's George Sigler. 
here's a guy who comes out of the Navy during the Vietnam War, and probably about 70s, probably checked out maybe somewhere around that time. But like most people, um, doesn't necessarily have anything lined up, um, but he has a lot of experience in um, watching people, you might say, get hurt or die um, as a result of spending time in the sea. So he has an idea to help them out by starting his own company and um, selling, you know, survival kits for people who would be at sea and who could rescue themselves. His whole idea was you should be able to self-rescue. And of course, this is pre-global positioning satellite days and pre-emergency beacons. He also is, I think, a very astute and a very sagacious, shrewd business person in the sense that, all right, well, if I want to do well, I need some notoriety myself. I'm going to get in a raft with a friend and we're going to basically sail to Hawaii on a Zodiac. And we're going to prove to people that the things I said and that need to be in a survival kit are the things that you need. I'm going to also um, sponsor a race. I'll sponsor the, uh, a race to some rocks out there, the Fairlawns. Yeah, let's do that. Once he sponsored that race, he opened something. And he opened something that to this day still survives, and that's the single-handed sail in society. And that and first Farallon race was what year? Do you know? It was 1977, Easter. I believe it was the weekend, maybe a Saturday, maybe a Sunday, but it was 1977, Easter weekend. Wow. And what do they say? About 60 boats started. The biggest one was Bill Lee's Merlin 67-foot ultralight sled. And the smallest one, get this, was a seven-foot El Toro. I remember <gasps> the name in Jackie Philpott's book, and her name was Katie LaFada. That's just, it's just crazy to think about. A 67-footer yeah. and a seven-footer, you know, and this were this was pre- you know, notice of race, kind of like structured stuff. It was more of a kind of a loose free for all. Yeah, there were safety inspections. And so they all go out to the Fairlawns in some really nasty conditions, I hear. Maybe 15 people finished. Obviously, the seven foot El Toro didn't, but uh, Bill Lee's Merlin did. About another 14 other people as well. And the finish was not traditionally, we do it, the finish and start at Golden Gate for the single handed Fairlawns. This finished at, in the estuary, yeah, at his design company or his survival safety sea company off of Fifth Street in the estuary. Now, I know this because I've read uh, Jackie Philpott's book. I remember she put it into the, the uh, duffel bags of the single-handed transpack racers, I want to say in 2016 or 2018. And she's our historian, and she's done a really good job of capturing um, the significant things that happened in, in the SSS. And, and then after that, it was like, these people, they actually had a great time. And so at the award ceremony, George Sigler says, all right, next year, we're going to Hawaii. <laughs> and people, I don't think were like, they were like, uh, what? And it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's a great, yeah, let's just do it, you know? And that's how the single-handed Trans-Pacific race uh, got started. And that was in 1978. 
and we still have somebody, we still have somebody who's still around uh, who was in that class. And his name is Skip Allen. And I look at the photos, you know, a 1978 alumni class. And I look at Skip, who is currently there now, and is like, that guy has not aged very much. And he <laughs> is, I would say, very knowledgeable. The consummate kind of like, I want to say old salt, but with a, ooh, how would you say it? A literary sense. He's a great writer too. We're going to have to get some of these guys on the podcast to talk definitely about these do. experiences. Oh, you mentioned the mission. I didn't want to miss, uh, um, overlook that. Yeah. You know, if I would to put it in, um, just to paraphrase it, and this is according to the world according to Joe and mm. kind of like the world according to Garp in a way. And, and that is that we have a mission to foster, to support the idea of single-handed sailing and that we disseminate that information. We encourage people to experiment with different designs and we want you know, fair competition with everybody. And it's basically, um, let's support everything and everything there is about single-handed sailing. Let's share that knowledge. Let's not hide it with anybody, not just share it with each other, but share it with other entities, you know, organizations. Um, it could help them in their whatever ways, whether it's safety or performance. Is there a common personality trait that you find amongst single-handed sailors? Is there something that draws a particular kind of person to single-handed sailings, particularly longer passages like out to Hawaii? Oh, yeah. I would say yes and no. I maybe on, on the more extreme end of that, meaning I'm more of a, a to myself person, what they call a type B introvert. You know, I've learned to be a type A person in order to a function in society. But the people who go to Hanalei Bay and that every other year, they're kind of a unique group, I would say. They fall in the adventurer class as well as a competitive class and as well as a freewheeling folk class. And it just attracts anyone who is like, I'm thinking of my friend, George Lithcott. He's been there three times. He's a very affable character. Outgoing, he's mm, opposite of me. I, I'm not reclusive, but he is probably two notches, much more friendly and much more open than I am just by his natural personality. And then we have others like, um, you know, Ken Roper. He was a, um, a real general in the army during the Vietnam era. And he's probably holds the most crossings. I want to say something like 10 times he's been there. And he's a no-nonsense character. But the people that I've met, I would say that I know well, they have a sense of independence they don't like to be told what to do. And they, there's a bit of a competitive streak um, amongst uh, not all of them, but enough of them. And if they're not competing against others, I think they might be competing against maybe themselves. And then we also have, like I said, people who just go into, uh, it's a, a once in a lifetime experience for them. And they're not sometimes normal sailors. However, sometimes those not so 
typical grown-up normal sailors turn into Tasmanian devils like um, Philippe Jamot, you know, it was his first time big series, you know, significant yeah. crossing. And now he's on an adventure. He's on a mission to yeah. want to sail, you know, nonstop solo. If people don't know Philippe, they can go back a few episodes and listen to my interview with him before he took off. Yeah. Um, we had a great conversation. What would you tell people who haven't done single handing, haven't sailed solo, um, who might be curious about it, but nervous about it? How would you explain it to somebody as different than crude racing? Yeah. I would say that anything you do on that boat, it's all about you. Yes, there's people who've taught you. There's people who might even make sandwiches for you. And there's people who might even push you off the dock. But once you leave, it's all about you. And so you have to be prepared and um, you have to be comfortable with you. Um, and you don't have to have you know, all the answers and know everything there is to single hand sailing, but you have to be willing to um, learn uh, from your own mistakes. You have to be willing to ask for help about why things aren't working the way you are. I would say that if you want to be a little bit more by yourself, a little bit more in tune with the boat, nature, the performance, everything, the waves, um, single-handing will provide you that more so than double-handed, I would say. Now, I don't, believe me, I don't have, I, I started double-handing. That's how I first got into shorthanded sailing. And people sometimes would say, well, you know, Joe, you're kind of, you know, you're, you're because you're more oriented towards single-handed yourself, you know, are you saying that double-handed is not so good? And I said, no. In every single-hander, there's a future double-hander because at some point, you know, we're not going to be able to sail <laughs> single-handed. <laughs> it takes a lot of effort. It yeah. takes a lot of energy. At the end of the day, you know, you're, you would welcome someone to help you roll the sails up. Uh, and then in every double-hander, there is a future single-hander as well. So they're complements of each other. That's interesting. Um, yeah. You get the feeling of accomplishment for yourself when you finish the race or whatever passage it is that you've done yourself but you're out there and when the shit hits the fan there's nobody to turn to <laughs> to help you fix something or bounce ideas off of do you have memories or examples of when you've had to face something and just say well this is up to me oh yeah yeah and, you know, I think I've been sailing probably long enough single-handed to, it doesn't feel so much like an accomplishment anymore. At least it's not in the foreground. It may be way back there in the background. It just feels like you've done something good for yourself. That's what it feels like. Hmm. And so on the way to Hawaii, I would say probably, you know, the things that lead up to Hawaii are important. And one of them is the qualifier. My first qualifier, I failed, but in that failure, I learned a lot. And so it helped me for my 2013 qualifier. And these qualifiers we call the long pack. They alternate on the years that the single-handed Trans-Pacific race is not occurring. 
And, and then you just go out and back. What is? Yeah, it? you go out two hundred miles somewhere. When was it? Maybe summertime. I think. Yeah, maybe uh, summertime around the same time. The single-handed transpec might occur. You go out there and you kind of battle the, the 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 conditions out there. And you know when you start getting out there, some of those that wave action and some of those winds can really get up there. And what it does is, you know, I've talked to my friend about this, George Lithcott, and we feel that. The long pack is tougher than the single-handed trans pack. It oh. really tests you and the boat because you're going out 200 miles and you're not you're not cracking off. The weather's not getting better. You make a U-turn and you're going back to that gauntlet again. Wow. And uh, not just the gauntlet of 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 the wave and wind conditions, but of your fatigue and of you might say the same thing you just left. You're going back into the same stuff again. Yeah, maybe sometimes it could be light, but having done um, only two, but having speaking to others after they've come back, being light is probably more atypical. Um, but you know, you could get a light year where you're just bobbing out there. But even that is psychological torture. And if you can, if you can withstand. Uh, more than your competitor, you're going to benefit not just yourself against a competitor, but you yourself as well, because that's what you could expect if you go on the uh, Trans-Pacific race. I recall in 2013, first time I've done it at sea, pray. It was the second evening and um, the winds piped up. And I think it was maybe the second evening, could have been the first, but I remember reef. It was in the. It was in, at night. I had uh, two reefs in the main. I had the handkerchief up. That would be my uh, my emergency foresail. For some reason, the worms are digging in my brain now. I can't remember it. And the winds would come through. And I would. Tr I would. I was laying in uh, the bunk on the high side, and the winds sounded like this. Shake the entire boat, and it was like a wind that blows that's so strong, and the pitch goes up, and then naturally the boat wants to head upwind, and so that's what it's happening. It's probably feathering upwind a little bit, and it's just shaking the rig really hard. And then about five minutes later, same thing. It was like a locomotive coming through. And if after about the fourth or fifth time, you know, you start to pray, you look at your life raft, you look at your ditch bag and you go, okay. And then at some point that goes on to the night and you're going to like, okay, I'm getting tired. You know, I'm seasick. God, if I wake up in the morning, I owe you something. <laughs> that was quite an experience and probably the most vivid experiences for the actual trans-Pacific race where one night a squall came through and in the evenings I get out and I drive by hand in the squalls. The autopilot doesn't do so well, but this one particular squall in the evening, the conditions were white out and I could see, Oh, I want to say maybe half a boat length in front of me. And so I couldn't even see the waves. So I had to, feel the boat as it was slowing down a little bit. And then when it slowed down a little bit, 
I want to make sure I crack down so I wouldn't hit the back of a wave and, you know, submarine the front end. And I recall that I couldn't look directly at the wave. I had to look through my peripheral vision because, you know, you're, the rods that you have on the outside of your eyes are much more adept at picking up a uh, light. Mm -hmm. um, I recall that. And it was like, and I started thinking, Joe, if you hit a tanker, you're dead. And I said, Joe, you better stop thinking about that and drive. <laughs> Keep the boat <laughs> from hitting the back end of a wave. Probably the most close I've got to probably being actually in danger would be about mm, the latitude of Los Angeles. The weather was getting a little bit warmer. I was stinking a little bit. So, you know, stripped down, kept my harness on, had the shoot up and I was off the wind, of course. And I saw a squall way up there. And I said, yeah, I've got time here. Let me, um, you know, scrub the suds off my body. Oh, it's hard to reach the spot. Let me take off my harness so I can reach that spot. Next thing I know, the boat's on its ear. I was in the cabin at the time. So once it was on its ear and I saw water coming across the combing. So I guess we're at 90 degrees capsized. Um, before that instant, though, I managed to do one of those Superman leaps. Sometimes you don't know where the strength comes from, but it felt like I leaped directly out of the companion way onto the cockpit sole and yanked the autopilot off the tiller. The way you get a small ultralight pointed downwind, as you probably know, you just whatever rudder is biting in the water you're just pumping it pumping and pumping it so you can get the nose point downwind and it took a while and then she stood up and bam the wind took her and i was holding on one hand on the tiller one hand to the one of the sheets my butt was all soaked up the cockpit <laughs> seat was all soaked up and i was sliding left and right and i was quite scared because i had no harness on yeah and I said, another wipeout, Joe, you better, you better just drop into that cockpit and just, you know, get real tight. And then I said, you know what? Drive the boat. Don't worry about what may happen because you need to focus on driving the boat. You need to relax. And then once I did that, I felt comfortable. Then eventually a squall went away. And first opportunity I had, I went, <laughs> got that harness on first, even though I wasn't clothed. I just put that harness on immediately, you know, once things calm down. So <laughs> That's what I remember from Hawaii. And those are, those are great memories. Wow. Those are some memories. Do you have a inner monologue going most of the time when you're out there? You don't have anybody to talk to. I think I might, if I'm not doing as well as I could, for example, if I'm taking a long time to get into a groove, now I'm thinking about this in terms of race a uh, local bay race but if you're thinking about what out there in the ocean you know um is there a monologue i never know in my head there wasn't a monologue there's more of a monologue when i'm in the bay because i'm competing and i'm under pressure but out there um no not much so much a monologue as much as there is maybe auditory hallucinations huh which brings up Something you mentioned before, which is fatigue. 
how do you prepare those and share knowledge? As you said, the, the society is, is, is for that. What kind of knowledge sharing around fatigue and how to deal with that sleep deprivation? I think everyone is different. I know some people take these 15 minute cat naps. Some people uh, nod off and get up every two hours. So they might hit the sack for two hours, get up. Other people are adamant about sleeping in the day and sailing at night because that's when the skull squalls come through. Uh, and I have a friend who just knocks out. It's like eight hours, man, I'm getting my sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I'm only getting up if things are really bad. Everyone's man, more power different. to you if you could do that. <laughs> you know, it's my friend George again. <laughs> um, I know myself in terms of sleep, what I can take. I'm better off taking longer stretches of sleep, two hours if I can, and then get up and check things and then go back to sleep. And people who do the race talk about alarm clocks, these really high volume, you know, um, devices that would wake you up in your most deep sleep. And I did take those, but I, f I didn't use them. I found out the most effective thing for me was drinking a lot of water because then nature gets you up <laughs> two hours later. That's a natural alarm call. It is. And then when you go back to sleep and you've taken care of business and you drink a lot of water again, and then nature does get you up. And that means you get up and in the evening you're sleeping maybe five hours. So you're up two times, maybe three times the most, but you get up when the boat feels funny. You get into a groove and something doesn't feel right wave action, the sound, the wind. And then also if you have uh, the visual, I was laying on my back and my views, I could always see the wind vane because I had a, a little flashlight on the backstay that was shined up there. And I had a US uh, a flag that my friend George tied on the back of the backstay. So I had two reference points always. So I could look up there and then I can always just, you know, if I didn't quite sure know what was going on, then I could always kind of just get up a little bit and look at the American flag and say, ah, yes, that's the direction I want to be in. I'm not sailing by the lee. I'm sailing on the right side and then I, I'm, I'm good. But I think more than anything else that helped me with sleep deprivation is uh, getting in good physical condition. I think that's very important. And I remember reading about that one guy in the Band of Brothers. You've probably seen the movie. What's his name? Captain Richard Winters. He was promoted to a major Richard Winters. He also wrote his own, I wouldn't call it biography, but his own version of the Band of Brothers, you might say. He talks about leadership and stuff. But in there, he talked about why he was able to excel as an officer. And one of those things was his physical fitness. While some of the other officers uh, crapped out um, in training because of fatigue, they made poor decisions under fatigue because he stayed in such good shape. He wasn't subjected to some of those same problems as they were. Everyone eventually does break down, but if you're in better physical shape, it's not going to affect your mental and cognitive abilities as much. That's interesting. We all know those two things are tied together, but it becomes vivid when you're pushing yourself to the limits. Very much so. And 
as Clint Eastwood said, everyone, man's, every man's got to know his limits. And that applies, of course, to a uh, woman. Every woman has no, uh, needs to know their limits. And that is when you start to make mistakes and you catch yourself and you say, ah, I thought I was clipped in. But what are you doing on the deck without your harness clipped in? I thought I clipped that in. Is it possible it unlocked? I was, I was crawling across the deck. No, you probably forgot to clip in. Ah, it's time to go to sleep, Joe. Yeah. You know, why don't you shut down because you're making one too many mistakes? Yeah. How did you initially get involved with the uh, Single-Handed Sailing Society? It was that race. And I, after the first race in 2004, I really don't think I returned for any of the big races because I was racing in the Express 27 fleet. And yes, they did have their... Um, some of their long distance races tied in with the SSS. I want to say possibly it was the, um, maybe the Corinthians and um, maybe the Round the Rocks. But I think I only did maybe two or three SSS races, maybe even two. Three Bridge Fiasco was always one. Um, and I didn't return to them until I started leaving the Express 27 buoy racing. And for me, it just became um, a lot of work to manage a team. And I wanted to explore my own potential. So those things happened at the same time. I had a great team before and I still have memories. I, there's one person I still keep in touch with. You know, there's something very satisfying about learning something new, getting better at it. And I want it always goes back to the same thing. Whatever that boat does, however you perform, however you sail, it all comes back to you. You have no one else to blame. It yeah. all comes back to you. Hmm. What haven't we touched on that you want to talk about? Either about your own sailing, the society, oh. or sailing in general? I want to say this year has been a, a nice surprise. Sometime in October, I got a call from Don Martin, who was the, uh, I didn't know at the time, the outgoing Commodore. And he asked, he goes, Joe, you know, your name's been nominated for Commodore. I said, hmm, that's interesting. And I thought very quickly, well, they didn't have a single-handed trans-Pacific race. That usually goes to kind of by default that's offered to the overall winner. So they must have put some careful thought into their next person they want. And um, I immediately said, you know what? I thought I had given back by volunteering at the one of the single-handed Trans-Pacific races and some um, maybe some race deck time on the Bay races and encouraging some of the younger racers, helping them out. Um, but this is perfect, you know. I can't make the meetings in a normal time, but during COVID times, it's Zoom meetings. So, and yeah. I'd love to give back in that in that way. So I was pleasantly surprised and um, I'm happy to be here. I feel a responsibility to all the people that have come before me to the organization. I mean, there's that thread again that ties me to the other Commodore and the other Commodore and then all the way back to that 1978 single-hand Transpac um, alumni class. That's great. That's a, um, a nice surprise. Yeah. Yeah. I would never thought, um, I would have never, yeah, I just, some things happen the way they do. And, um, you know, 
it was a it's it's good it's always good that the the rains change every two years it brings in new blood fresh blood and if people wanted to get involved with the single hand sailing society what would you recommend obviously it's unusual times we can't just come to a a meeting oh we got things that need to be done <laughs> so <laughs> if they're interested you know reach out to uh, me on the website of course and then any of the other people on there and um what you know, part of taking this position, I actually sat down and spent some Zoom time with the former past Commodores. And uh, I asked them things like, you know, what was their experience, you know, what sort of um, things that they want to do, but, you know, just didn't have time to do. Um, and basically, you know, seeking their advice. Um, and also then coming to kind of a, my own conclusion about, okay, what can we do? What needs to be done uh, to keep this SS vessel, SSS vessel on track, but not just on track, but sailing well, trimmed well. And um, I will, I'm going to give volunteers a little bit of a guilt trip first. All right. <laughs> know that uh, it's so nice to be out there to sail and compete and say, thank you, race committee. But remember, um, that experience that you had was possible by some dedicated, loyal group of volunteers who want you to be out there and have a good time. And it's important that you give back. You either pay it back or even pay it forward sometimes. And you will give the same enjoyment and pleasure that you have out in the water to the next group of people. Joe, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you hearing about your own experiences and hearing more about the Single-Handed Sailing Society. It's been on my radar to get somebody from the society on the podcast for a while. So I really appreciate it. Yeah, you're very welcome, Ben. Well, that wraps up this week's episode. If you're interested in learning more about the Single-Handed Sailing Society, visit sfbayss.org. And I recommend also a talk by the founder of the SSS, George Sigler, that you can find on YouTube, all about his trip in a Zodiac across the Pacific to test his survival gear. He gave the talk in 2016 at the National Naval Aviation Museum. And it's really easy to find. I think it's the first thing that pops up as you search George Sigler, S-I-G-L-E-R, on YouTube. It's really a fascinating story of survival. Anyway, if you enjoyed the podcast, do leave a comment in Apple Podcasts, or you can shoot me a message directly at outthegatesailing at gmail.com. I'm Ben Shaw, host and producer of the show. Until next time, smooth sailing.